0: Hello everyone, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. As some of you may know, the Nobel Prizes for 2016 are in the process of being announced, with this year's winner for physiology or medicine handed out to Dr. Yoshinori Osumi on October 3rd for his discoveries on mechanisms for autophagy. I thought it'd be fun to do a podcast on surgeons that have won the award, and I was surprised to learn how many had won. There are discoveries applicable to a number of surgical specialties, including endocrine surgery, vascular surgery, ENT, ophthalmology, neurosurgery, cardiac surgery, urology, and transplant surgery. There are some important discoveries and some fascinating stories. There's lots to get to, so let's get started on Nobel Prize-winning surgeons in this episode of Legends of Surgery. Okay, so here's my plan for this episode. First, I want to talk about the origin of the Nobel Prize Award, because it's a good story and I think it's worth knowing. We'll then cover each of the nine awards given to surgeons and give a little background into the people that won it, and of course, the work that earned them the award. Now, unlike other podcasts, I won't go into extensive detail as there are just too many to cover, and this is going to be a pretty long one anyway. We'll finish with a bit of fun, but you'll have to listen to the whole thing to learn more. Alfred Nobel was born October 21, 1833, in Stockholm, Sweden. He came from an interesting family as he descended from a famous 17th century inventor named Olaf Rudbeck, and his father was an engineer and inventor building bridges and buildings in Stockholm. The family went bankrupt the year Alfred was born due to the loss of some barges with construction material, and they moved around, landing in Finland and Russia. Young Alfred could speak five languages by the age of 17. Now, As a young man, he traveled to Paris to further his education, and there he met an Italian chemist named Asanio Sobrero, who had recently discovered a highly explosive liquid called nitroglycerin. It was thought to be too volatile and dangerous to be of any use, but Alfred became interested in developing it for the mining industry. Now, despite a number of setbacks, including a fatal explosion that killed his brother, he persisted and eventually discovered an additive that would turn the liquid into a paste that could be formed into rods that would be inserted into drilling holes. He patented this in 1867 with the name dynamite, from the Greek dunamis, meaning power. Now this was a game changer, and Alfred Nobel became rich. He used this newfound wealth to build factories and became a major armaments dealer. But here we come across an interesting story. In 1888, Alfred's brother Ludwig died. Due to some confusion, a number of newspapers accidentally published obituaries for Alfred instead, including a French paper that declared, quote, Le marchand de la mort est mort. The merchant of death is dead. It is said that he was so profoundly affected by this rebuke that he bequeathed his entire fortune to institute the Nobel Prize. All right, without further ado, let's get to our list. Number one on the list, and the first surgeon to ever win the Nobel, is Dr. Theodore Coker, who won in 1909 for his work on the physiology, pathology, and surgery of the thyroid gland. Born in Bern, Switzerland in 1841, Coker trained as a surgeon in both Bern and Zurich. To set the stage, at the time that he was beginning to attempt thyroidectomies, which is the surgical removal of the thyroid gland, it was considered one of the most dangerous operations around, which an honest surgeon should not attempt. In fact, the Academy of Medicine in France actually prohibited the thyroidectomy, as the mortality rate before 1872, the year Coker did his first thyroidectomy, was as high as 75%. Why anybody would agree to do this, I can't imagine. But Coker had been studying the anatomy and function of the thyroid, and along with his implementation of antiseptic technique and use of anesthesia, remember these were new concepts at the time, he also brought a meticulously precise technique to dissect the tissues, respecting anatomical structures with minimal blood loss, and was able to reduce the mortality incidence to less than 0.2% by 1898. His advice to young surgeons was, quote, not fast, but safe, end quote. Now, Interestingly, he learned under Theodore Billroth, another famous surgeon, who had done similar operations, but not to the degree of attention that Coker used. In fact, his ability to remove the entire thyroid Led to his descriptions of its function. In 1883, he presented the outcomes of his first 100 thyroidectomies at a Congress of German Surgical Society. 30 of the 100 showed weight gain, mental and speech slowing, hair loss, abnormal heart rates, and anemia. These were the patients that had had the entire thyroid removed, compared to those with only partial removal, and so demonstrated the gland's function. Over his lifetime, Kocher performed over 7,000 thyroid operations, and was considered the person who initiated the field of endocrinology. He was nominated for the Nobel five times before winning and used his prize money for a research institute which still bears his name in Bern. Those that work in an OR may also know the name Coker from the surgical instrument that he developed which is a strong clamp used for grasping tissues. Okay number two on our list is Alvar Gullstrand who won in 1911 for his work on the dioptrics of the eye. Born at Landskrona, Sweden in 1862, Goldstrand was an ophthalmologist by training who was entirely self-taught in geometric and physiological optics. The work that he won the Nobel Prize for was his calculations on how the lens of the eye refracts, or bends, the light, this is dioptrics, to make an image. This was quite a feat, as not only does the eye's lens have different layers that refract the light to different degrees, but the lens itself can change shape. Now as important as this work was, however, his greatest practical contribution to ophthalmology was actually the invention of the slit lamp, which is a light source used to examine the anterior chamber of the eye, still a valuable instrument today. Now one quick funny story. Because of his interest in physics, Gullstrand worked as the chairman of the physics committee for the Nobel. During his time, he rejected Albert Einstein's work for a Nobel Prize, stating that it was not important enough to receive the award. But don't worry, Einstein got his Nobel in 1921. Number three on our list is Alexis Carell, who won in 1912 in recognition of his work on vascular suture and the transplantation of blood vessels and organs. I won't go into great detail here, as I recently covered Carell and his work in podcast number 20, so if you haven't listened to it, go check it out. I will just say that in his Nobel speech, he outlined his principles for sewing two small blood vessels together, something that was not possible before. They are strict avoidance of contamination delicate handling of the blood vessels to avoid injuring the lining by using fine needles and Vaseline-coated sutures, and sewing under tension to avoid leaks. He also developed what's called the corral stitch, which was a technique of triangulation, meaning holding the blood vessels in place at three points equally distant from each other. Now, okay, I've said enough, but there's a lot more to his story, so if you're interested, you know where to go find out more. Number four on our list is Robert Baraney, who won in 1914 for his work on the physiology and pathology of the vestibular apparatus quick explanatory note. The vestibular apparatus is sometimes called the inner ear, and it's a sensory system which provides a sense of balance and spatial orientation, allowing us to coordinate our movements. You may not think about it much, but we'd be lost without it. So Baraney was born in 1842 in Vienna, Austria. It was here while practicing medicine that he noticed a strange phenomenon. He was syringing fluid into the ear of a patient to relieve their dizzy spells. The patient experienced vertigo, a sense that objects around them are moving when they aren't, a sort of spinning sensation, and nystagmus, which is an involuntary eye movement, when the fluid he injected was too cold. After warming it up, he noticed that the eye movements went in the opposite direction. He theorized that this was due to how fluid, called endolymph, moved in the vestibular apparatus, and this reaction to temperature became known as the caloric reaction, from the Latin calor, meaning heat. But don't try this at home, folks. His work, along with other observations, helped in the understanding of this critical structure and eventually allowed for surgical treatments to be possible. And here's a great tidbit about Bahraini. In World War I, as a civilian surgeon with the Austrian army, he treated soldiers with head wounds, which allowed him to continue his study of the inner ear and cerebellum, which is part of the brain. But he was captured by the Russians and made a prisoner of war. In fact, he was a POW when the Nobel Prize was announced, and so Prince Carl of Sweden, along with the Red Cross, intervened on his behalf and secured his release in 1916. Maybe out of appreciation for this, Brainy eventually immigrated to Sweden and became a professor at the Uppsala University. Number five on our list is Frederick Banting, who won in 1923 for the discovery of insulin. Banting was born in 1891 in a rural town outside of Toronto, Ontario, Canada. After receiving his medical degree in 1917, he went to World War I as a combat surgeon with the Royal Canadian Army Medical Corps. He received a military cross for heroism under fire... For continuing to treat wounded soldiers after being wounded himself at the Battle of Cambrai, there he worked under Clarence Starr, a prominent orthopedic surgeon at the Hospital for Sick Children, colloquial known as Sick Kids, in Toronto. This inspired him to do an orthopedic residency at Sick Kids after the war, from 1919 to 1920. But following this, he was unable to get a staff position, so he went down the road to London, Ontario, where he began practice and took up a part-time teaching position at the University of Western Ontario. Luckily for the world, his practice was slow to develop, and so he became interested in physiology and research, specifically the function of the pancreas. He proposed a project to John Macleod, the director of the Physiological Laboratory at the University of Toronto and the person with whom he would later share the Nobel Prize, to ligate, or tie off, the pancreatic duct in dogs. The idea was to cause the pancreas to atrophy, or shrink, thereby removing the part of the pancreas that produced an enzyme that destroys proteins, leaving the part that produces insulin intact. After weeks of work, Banting, along with his medical student assistant Charles Best, were able to make an extract from this atrophic dog pancreas, which they re-injected into a diabetic dog, which cured the dog's induced diabetic coma. They later were able to isolate insulin from fetal calves, which they got at a slaughterhouse, and in fact, pork and beef would remain the primary sources of insulin until they were replaced by genetically engineered bacteria in the late 20th century. Now, Enough cannot be said about this groundbreaking discovery. This was essentially a cure for a disease that had about a one-year life expectancy after diagnosis. Children that were wasting away in beds would recover in a matter of weeks. The fact that there's only a year between their discovery and the awarding of the Nobel speaks to the impact of their findings. Banting would be given a lifetime annuity by the Canadian government to continue his research, and he was knighted by King George V. An interesting side note on the Nobel itself. Banting flew into a rage when he learned that his assistant Best was not awarded the prize too, and so he shared the prize money and credit with him. But Best, in a way, was only there out of sheer luck. There were two medical students in the lab, the other being Clark Noble. But Banting only needed one, so they flipped a coin, which Best won, and the rest is history. Banting and McLeod, along with Best, and the biochemist Collip, who helped them isolate the insulin, are now recognized as the co-discoverers. They sold the patent for insulin to the University of Toronto for $1. Banting continued to do research in a number of areas and in early 1940 he was working on a pressurized flying suit. He wanted to test this out in England on pilots with the Royal Air Force. En route his Hudson bomber plane crashed after refueling in Newfoundland and Banting died of his injuries. He's buried in Toronto at Mount Pleasant Cemetery. Number six on our list is Walter Hess who won in 1949 for his discovery of the functional organization of the interbrain as a coordinator of the activities of the internal organs. Born in 1881 in Frauenfeld, Switzerland, Hess worked in a private practice as an ophthalmologist near Zurich from 1908 to 1912 when he decided to leave this practice and train in physiology. He worked on using electrical stimulation in cats, where he demonstrated that the diencephalon, which is a region deep in the brain, and specifically the area called the hypothalamus, was crucial for controlling blood pressure, breathing rate, body temperature, and other bodily functions. This is part of what's called the autonomic nervous system, basically the bodily functions that our brains do without us having to think about it. It has two branches called the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. The first is sometimes called the fight or flight system, which amps up our bodies in response to a threat. And the second is called the rest and digest or feed and breed system, which is fairly self-explanatory. Hess would insert a metal thread into different parts of anesthetized cat's hypothalamus, and when the cat awoke, he could trigger different behaviors with weak electrical impulses. The cats could be made to display defensive and aggressive behaviors and to curl up and go to sleep. Hess's systematic mapping of the localization of these functions ultimately led to successful surgery of certain motor disturbances in humans. Okay, three more to go. Stay with me here. Number seven on our list is Werner Forsman, who won in 1956 for discoveries concerning heart catheterization and pathological changes in the circulatory system, and he actually shared the prize with two others. Born in Berlin, Germany in 1904, he completed medical school in 1929. That year he performed the first human cardiac catheterization. But how and who he did this on is a story worth telling. Forsman had the idea that a catheter, or thin tube, could be directly inserted into the heart allowing for things like the delivery of drugs, injection of dyes, and measurement of blood pressure. But at the time, it was thought that intrusion into the heart would be fatal. So not surprisingly, he had difficulty getting permission to try this out. Instead, he convinced an OR nurse to help him self-experiment. She refused, agreeing only to help if he did it to her instead. So he had her restrained on the bed and tricked her by anesthetizing her arm and making a sham incision while really inserting a ureteric catheter, meaning a tube for the ureter into the vein of his own elbow. Forsman then walked down the hall to the radiology department to use imaging to guide it into the right ventricle of his own heart. Now this did not endure him to his supervisors and he eventually left cardiology to study urology. This was interrupted by World War II where he became a medical officer eventually rising to the rank of major before becoming a US POW. Of interest Forsman had been a member of the Nazi party since 1932 which may explain why he sort of went underground after the war first working as a lumberjack and then as a country doctor in the Black Forest with his wife, before resurfacing in 1950 to begin his practice as a urologist. His paper on his self-catheterization was discovered during his time as a POW, eventually leading to his recognition with the Nobel Prize. Number 8 on our list is Charles Huggins, who won in 1966 for his discoveries concerning hormonal treatment of prostate cancer. Born in 1901 in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada, Huggins, the second Canadian on this list, Trained at Harvard in Michigan and practiced urology in Chicago. He combined an active career in urological surgery and cancer research in a basic sciences lab as he felt that, quote, the business of finding out was one of the supreme joys of mankind. End quote. Huggins studied prostate cancer in dogs and found that after orchiectomy, the surgical removal of the testes, the tumors regressed or shrunk, showing that some types of cancers needed hormones to fuel their growth. Now in 1941, he started to treat patients with metastatic, meaning widespread, prostate cancer with so-called androgen ablation, the removal of male hormone, by either castration or estrogen therapy. And This method of treatment is still used today and is also used in other cancers, probably most famously in the treatment of breast cancer. Our ninth and final surgeon on our list of Nobel Prize winners is Joseph Murray, who won for his discoveries concerning organ and cell transplantation in the treatment of disease. Murray was born in Milford, Massachusetts, USA in 1919, and in what seems to be a theme, Murray's training was interrupted by war. After just nine months of a surgical internship, he was randomly assigned to the Valley Forge General Hospital during World War II, which was a major plastic surgery center full of battle casualties. He spent three years there and saw a lot of burn patients. Many were too burned for autologous skin grafts, meaning taking skin from another part of their own bodies. So as a life-saving measure, skin grafts were taken from another person to act as a temporary cover. Now these would be slowly rejected as foreign. And his supervisor, Colonel James Barrett Brown, postulated that the closer the genetic relationship between the skin donor and the recipient, the slower the rejection. In fact, in 1937, Brown had experimentally cross-skin graft a pair of identical twins and documented permanent graft survival in both twins. The body's immune reaction to transplant fascinated Murray. He trained in plastic surgery, but after the war, focused his research on transplantation. In 1962, Murray performed the first successful kidney transplant between identical twins on December 23, 1954, in operating room two of the Peter Bent Brigham Hospital, taking a healthy kidney from Ronald Herrick and transplanting it into his twin brother, Richard, who was dying of chronic nephritis. Richard went on to live another eight years. Murray became a world leader in the study of transplantation biology and the use of immunosuppressive agents and the mechanisms of rejection. This obviously has had a massive impact on surgery and the world ever since. If you want to know more about Murray, he wrote an autobiography called Surgery of the Soul, which is actually a pretty good read. This list of surgeons is prestigious, but is also remarkable in the absence of some famous names. Alfred Blalock, the American surgeon who developed the surgery to treat the birth defect called Tetralogy of Fallot, known as Blue Baby Syndrome, was nominated several times, but never won. And the famous neurosurgeon Harvey Cushing was also nominated six times and never got the prize. Everett Graham, known for his work in thoracic surgery, including performing the first pneumonectomy, meaning lung removal, was also denied. And finally, William Halstead, another giant of American surgery, was nominated once by our first Nobel Prize winner, Theodore Coker. And the list of other prominent 20th century surgeons that could be considered would fill a book. Finally, I'd be remiss to not mention the Ig Nobel's, if you've never heard of these, let me give you some quick background. The nobels not Ignoble, but a play on the word, have been around since 1991. These awards are organized by the magazine The Annals of Improbable Research and are amazingly presented by actual Nobel laureates at Harvard University. Awards are given to both the Nobel categories as well as other categories, and they're given to discoveries that, quote, cannot or should not be reproduced, end quote. But the awards are meant to honor achievements that first make people laugh and then make them think and can have real-life usefulness. A lot of these have been given out to surgeons, or published in surgical journals, or at least have a surgical bent. Now, Here are some examples, but rest assured, this is not an exhaustive list. This year's winner of the Reproduction Prize was Dr. Ahmed Shafiq of Egypt, who published, quote, Effect of Different Types of Textiles on Sexual Activity Experimental Study, end quote, in the journal European Urology. Sounds bland, but was actually a study of the effects of wearing polyester, cotton, or wool trousers on the sex life, of rats, so he put tiny trousers on them with a hole for their tails and noted those wearing polyester had a, quote, significantly lower, end quote, rates of sexual activity, postulating that this was due to electrostatic effects around the genitals. The winner of the 2014 Medicine Prize was, quote, nasal packing with strips of cured pork as treatment for uncontrollable epistaxis in a patient with glansman thrombosthenia, published in the Annals of Autology, Rhinology, and Laryngology. So essentially treating uncontrollable nosebleeds by stuffing bacon up the nose. The 2012 Medicine Prize winner was, quote, colonic gas explosion during therapeutic colonoscopy with electrocautery, end quote, from the World Journal of Gastroenterology. Self-explanatory, but actually a reasonably useful paper. I recommend Googling it. It's available for free. The 2001 Medicine Prize winner was, quote, injuries due to falling coconuts, end quote, in the Journal of Trauma. This was a serious review of emergency records from a hospital in Papua New Guinea, with an examination of the physics behind it, and a description of severity. Two patients actually required craniotomy. Now, you could spend a lot of time reading these papers, but I'll leave that to the listener to decide if you want to go enjoy more. I'll end on a serious note with a quote from Dr. Huggins, one of our Nobel Prize winners, on his thoughts about research. Quote, Discovery is quite different from development. Discovery is science. It is for the few who enjoy meditation and reflection even during the activity of experimentation. Development is for the practical man and the big team. In discovering, one becomes emotionally bound up in his problem. In the beginning of discovery, there is nothing, only void. Then comes the dream, and its high quality is the genius of research. The dream is a fantasy, a creation of the imaginative faculty, That wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. This weekend is Thanksgiving in Canada, so happy Thanksgiving to my Canadian listeners. And in two weeks, we'll almost be at Halloween, so I've chosen an interesting subject that frankly has a bit of a spooky feel to it. I think you'll really like it, so don't forget to tune in. Please rate the podcast on iTunes and leave a comment there, or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends, like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery, or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. And As always, thanks for listening.